Welcome to this seminar, which is entitled, What About Atheism? And just to introduce myself, my name is Adrian Holloway. I am based at Everyday Church in Wimbledon uh, with my wife, Julia, and our four children. Our children are aged 18, 17, 11, and 9. In this seminar, I am going to speak for 20 minutes. We are going to watch 20 minutes of videos. I'm very excited about the videos we're going to see. And then the last 20 minutes will be you speaking. I'd like to invite you to come up to this microphone that I'm pointing to on my left, another one at my right, and ask any questions you have. And then we will finish bang on the dot at 12.30. And then I'll come off the stage and I'll stand here at the front. And if you want to ask questions, I'll stand here at the front, but we'll be done at 12.30. Okay, well, let's get underway then, shall we, everybody, with this talk, which is entitled, What About Atheism? Maybe you have a friend who says, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. Seeing as Richard Dawkins is by far the best-known atheist in Britain today, let's look at his argument. In his book, The God Delusion, Dawkins makes his case for atheism in six steps. Step one, one of the greatest challenges to the human intellect has been to explain how the complex, improbable appearance of design in the universe arises. Hey, I think everybody would agree with this. For example, imagine you went for a bike ride in the countryside and you came across a huge metal ball. The huge metal ball is improbable. So yes, you'd wonder, how did that get there? If we just have a picture of the metal ball on the screen. The natural temptation is to attribute the appearance of design to actual design itself. Again, Dawkins must be correct. None of us would think, I reckon that ball's always been there. None of us would think, that ball made itself. No, we would think that the ball looks designed because it really was designed. Step three. The temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. So this is surely Dawkins' first mistake, because we don't need to know who designed the metal ball in order to be confident that the ball was designed. Hey, we don't know who designed the ball, but we have got really good reasons for thinking that the ball was designed. Dawkins disagrees. Dawkins thinks that we should reject design as an explanation, and we will come back to this, because Dawkins says that this, his step three, is the key argument in his case. Okay, step four. The most ingenious and powerful explanation is Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Okay, let's say for the purposes of this morning that we agree on point four. Now, as it happens, 
I did a seminar exactly here at New Day last year on evolution, and if you are interested, you could look on the New Day website and listen to it. But let's just say, for the sake of the argument, that all of us in this tent all immediately agreed with Richard Dawkins on point four, that we all say all living things can all be explained by, by Darwinian evolution. So on that basis, all animals, all plants, all humans alive today are all descended from one tiny living organism. Personally, I have my doubts about that, but let's just forget about my doubts and let us cut Richard Dawkins some slack. Let's just say we accept his point four. Here's the thing. Even if we accept his step four, evolution would not rule out God. Because what if there is a God who wanted trees and dogs and humans, and this God used the process of evolution to bring about trees and dogs and humans? There could be a real God who guided the process of evolution. This is totally possible. So step four does not rule out God. Step five says we don't have an equivalent explanation for physics. Here Dawkins admits that he has a hole in his argument. In arguing from biology to atheism, here he admits he has a big gap in step five. Most scientists today think that the universe began 13.7 billion years ago. And it is thought that life began on our planet 3.8 billion years ago. So just think about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory really is. Biological evolution doesn't even start until the universe has already been in existence for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did it begin to exist? How come there's something rather than nothing? Evolution doesn't even address these questions, and I've listed these questions here as A, B, and C. To get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that was capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence, that cause cannot be biological evolution because there is no biology before the universe exists. That's question A. Question B is, how come the universe is finely tuned in such a way as to permit advanced organic life? Biological evolution says nothing about that that is miles outside of its remit. Why is the universe just right for advanced organic life? As we will see in our second video, other circumstances would have ruled out all life anywhere in the universe. Yet we have a life-permitting universe. So again, it's entirely possible that there is a real God who fine-tuned the universe for life. And then C, evolution has no way of explaining how life ever got going on Earth. Because it's a theory that addresses what happens after life got going on Earth. And I've listed on the screen some of the problems or the barriers to getting life going on Earth through chance alone, through purely naturalistic processes. So let's just recap 
A, B, and C. Evolution begins A, after you've already got our universe. B, after we already have planet Earth. C, after you already have a single-celled organism living in the ideal conditions on the surface of our planet. So it would be really naive to argue, because evolution has happened, God doesn't exist, yet that is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. Here's his final point. Step six, we should not give up hope of a better explanation arising in physics. Something as powerful as Darwinism is for biology. Well, I'm afraid this is simply Dawkins repeating the mistake that he previously made in step four. Because this time, the mistake comes in the realm of physics rather than biology. The discovery of a mechanism doesn't rule out God. Hey, for all we know, every future discovery that physicists ever make could simply be us discovering the mechanisms God used when God made what God made. It could well be that all we are doing in physics is finding out how God set up the universe. After his step six, Dawkins stops, and he concludes, therefore God almost certainly does not exist. But this conclusion does not follow from the previous six steps. Hey, even if we agree to all six of his steps, his conclusion doesn't follow because there are loads of other reasons for thinking that God exists. For example, many people have become convinced that God exists because of the moral argument for the existence of God. And we will look at that moral argument in our third and fourth videos this morning. Many other people have become convinced that God exists because of the evidence for the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What about doubting Thomas? What about Saul of Tarsus? For example, they were skeptics. When they were told that Jesus had risen from the dead, they didn't believe it. But then, after they experienced the risen Jesus, they were prepared to die for their belief that Jesus is alive. Hey, if we invited doubting Thomas and Saul of Tarsus onto the stage right now, and we carefully explain Dawkins' six steps to them, Dawkins' six steps would do nothing to undermine their personal experience of God. Dawkins' six steps wouldn't even lay a glove on their experience that God exists. Okay, so far in our seminar, we've seen weaknesses in Dawkins' case for atheism can we now build a positive case for God? Can we present a list of strong reasons to think that God does exist? The answer is yes, and here's the first. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Watch the screens. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? 
One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible, then, that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Okay, a few minutes ago, we heard Richard Dawkins claim 
that the central argument of his book, or the best argument that he can put forward for atheism, is his step three. He thinks that the objection, who designed the designer, or who made God, is the best argument for atheism. But the discoveries of modern science mean that it's now a poor argument for atheism. The standard model of how the universe began is that time, space, matter, and energy all began to exist at the beginning of the universe. So we now know that whatever caused the universe is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and enormously powerful. So Dawkins' question, who made God, becomes a non-question. It's a question that doesn't make sense because modern science has shown us that the cause of the universe is outside of time and space. If the cause of the universe is timeless, we could easily say that the cause of the universe is eternal. And a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful maker of the universe does look like God. And if the atheist then says, whoa, 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 foul, uh, referee, referee, you can't just say God is eternal. Please remember, this is not special pleading on behalf of God because this is exactly what the atheist used to say about the universe. The atheist used to say, the universe is eternal. And atheists only stopped saying that when they were forced to stop. And they were forced to stop when the scientific evidence showed that the universe is not eternal. Okay, now let's look at our second reason to think that God exists. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles. The very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. 
This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be, it was designed that way. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. 
There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Okay, well so far we've seen two arguments for the existence of God. We saw firstly the Kalam cosmological argument, and secondly we looked at the fine-tuning argument. And remember, we are going to have time for questions at the end of this seminar. Now we're going to move on quickly to a third argument for the existence of God. And this next one cuts closer to home. Because this argument is all about how you and I behave. It's about the decisions that all of us make every day. It's all to do with right and wrong. Let's watch the screens. You know, nobody asked me if I wanted to exist. Yeah, one day, boom, there you are. And you think to yourself, why am I here? Well, what do you think? Is there a reason we're here? Do our lives have any real significance? Well, that depends. On what? On whether or not God exists. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that my life has no significance because I don't believe in God? No, not at all. I'm saying that if God doesn't exist, it doesn't matter what you believe. Our lives would have no objective meaning, value or purpose. Many atheists themselves recognize this. If atheism is true, life is absurd. Okay, and why do they think that? To begin with, if God does not exist, then the physical universe is all there is. Which means you and I are just accidental byproducts of nature. Right, so? That means we were not intentionally designed. So there's no purpose for us being here. Whoa. It gets worse. If God does not exist, there is no absolute standard of moral value. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, the atheist. He points out that in a materialistic universe, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. So you're saying atheists can't be good people? No, I'm not saying that. Many atheists live good lives. What I'm saying is atheism fails to provide an objective basis for saying any particular action is good or evil. Oh, come on. After millions of years of sociobiological evolution, humans have developed a sense of morality. We all know it's good to feed a hungry child and bad to torture someone for fun. Of course we do. But that's precisely what atheism cannot explain. If there's no God, then what we consider right or wrong is nothing more than an accident of evolution or a human social convention. So what? I'm good with that. Really? Evolution implies survival of the fittest, not morality. And social convention means that racism, intolerance and cruelty are not really wrong. They just happen to be unpopular. Okay, so atheists need to come up with some objective standard for rights and wrongs. How about this? If an action leads to human flourishing, then we can say it's objectively good. And if it doesn't, it's objectively evil. But why think that human flourishing is good? 
Aren't you being species-centric? Why not refer instead to the flourishing of rats or cabbages? Well, uh... and who gets to decide what contributes to human flourishing? Hitler was convinced killing millions of Jews would promote human flourishing. And Margaret Sanger thought forcing poor people to be sterilized would lead to human flourishing. As Guy Nielsen points out, pure practical reason will not take you to morality. So if atheism is true, there is no legitimate basis for saying that behaving one way is worse than behaving any other way. So it really doesn't matter how you live your life. Your day-to-day choices are meaningless. That's depressing. So if there's no God, what happens when you die? Well, nothing. You simply cease to exist. Right. So one person lives a kind, generous, thoughtful life. Another lives a horrible, violent, selfish life. It doesn't matter. In both cases, the outcome is the same. Nothingness. So how can their life choices have any objective meaning? Well, it's certainly meaningful if I discover a cure for cancer or save a child's life. I agree completely. But atheism can't explain why. Scientists predict that eventually the whole universe and mankind with it will die out. So everything comes to nothing. That's why atheist Bertrand Russell says we must build our lives on the firm foundation of despair. No thanks. I'd rather live a happy life. You're not alone. Every atheist has to choose between being happy or being consistent. You can tell the whole world you're an atheist, but you can't really live like one. Okay, so you're a Christian. If your god did exist, how would that change anything? If Christianity is true, then each one of us is here for a reason. And life does not end at the grave. And God, he's the absolute standard of goodness. He knows you, he loves you, and he intentionally created you. So your life ultimately does have objective meaning, value, and purpose. That means you can live a life that's both happy and consistent. Well, that doesn't prove Christianity's true. Agreed. I'm simply pointing out that for Christians, living a life that is both happy and consistent is possible. For atheists, it's not. So what are you going to choose? Okay, so that video is building what we could call a moral argument for the existence of God. And if we could boil this argument down, we could come up with just two premises. Let's have a look at them. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Okay, well, this sounds like common sense. If I am an atheist teenager, then why should I obey the rules of a God who doesn't exist? I want to be free. And if there is no God to answer to, if there is no judgment day, then I am free to do what I want. It would be outrageous for any priest to impose his religious rules on me. If God does not exist, well, then it's all just a matter of opinion. If there is no God, 
then there are no objective moral duties. It's just my opinion versus your opinion versus his opinion versus her opinion and so on. So premise one does sound like common sense. Most people I talk to would agree with premise one. But if you then ask the same atheist, do you think that torturing children for fun is wrong? They will all reply, well, yes, of course it's wrong. You say, okay, so what if there had been a society somewhere, some tribe, in some jungle, sometime in the past, and in that village, torturing children for fun was considered to be okay? Would that have made it okay? They reply, well, no, of course not. Torturing children for fun has always been wrong and will always be wrong. You say, hey, I agree. Torturing children for fun isn't just subjectively wrong, it's objectively wrong. They say, yes, exactly. You say, oh, so objective moral values and duties do exist. They say, well, yes, absolutely. What? They just agreed to the second premise. Two minutes ago, they agreed to the first premise. Now they're agreeing to premise two. They agree with both the premises. Almost every teenager I meet agrees with both the premises. And if both premises are correct, this implies that God does exist. We can build the same argument by comparing and contrasting straight lines with crooked lines. The only reason why anyone in this tent could call a line crooked would be if at some point in your life previously you had seen a straight line. It's because you've seen a straight line that you can tell that the crooked line is crooked. In the same way, if there is a man who is torturing a child for fun, then he is doing something crooked. He's twisting a straight line to make it crooked. A man torturing a child is twisting a straight line. He is breaking a straight, objective, moral law. And if there is a straight, objective, moral law, there must be an objective, moral law giver. And an objective moral lawgiver is another way of describing God. So now let's watch and see how you and I can put together a powerful moral argument for the existence of God. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it, undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait, the question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard 
against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, Hey, that's not fair. That's wrong. That's an injustice. You affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination, and terrorism are wrong. For everybody. Always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to, then, is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God.
Okay. Well, ideally, we would have covered five arguments for God in depth in this seminar. I apologize that we've only covered three of them with our videos. We've heard three arguments for the existence of God. And I briefly referred to arguments four and five on this list on the screen. I mentioned earlier that there is historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I also mentioned, fifthly, personal experience of God. And of course, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is evidence not only for thinking that God exists, but it's also evidence for thinking that Christianity is true. Okay, well, it's now time for questions, but I hope that this morning, at the very least, we've seen, first of all, that there are weaknesses in Richard Dawkins' case for atheism, and I really hope, secondly, that we've also seen that there is a number of good reasons for thinking that God does exist. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, would you like in the last few moments, we're going to finish at 12.30 to make your way to the two microphones that I'm pointing to now. We'll take some questions and answers and we'll finish bang on at 12.30. Okay, would you want to go ahead and ask your question? Thank you. So, um, some, so uh, one of the, some of the arguments that I've kind of heard, one of them is that, so if God does exist, then why is there suffering in the world? Why is there so much, like, wars happening, so much bad things that are happening around the world? And that's, I just wanted to hear your opinion on that and how you okay. debate that. Okay, thank you very much for that question. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to come back tomorrow because my great friend David McNee from UCCF will be here and he will spend the whole morning on that question. How about over here? What's your question? Um, so I went to the What About Islam seminar and it talked in there about not arguing people to God. That usually doesn't work. Is there a way, because I have an atheist friend, to bring him to God without trying to argue him and just smash whatever points he has? Okay, this is a great question. I'm going to answer it very briefly. Yes, absolutely. With many people who are just in it for the argument, they're not open to a different way of looking at things, in which case a bit like when Andy McCulloch was here talking about when you're talking to a Muslim, actually the life that you live and the way that you behave and your friendship with the person and the love that you show them will get past their defenses far more powerfully than any of these arguments were. It's a good question. How about you? Yes, go ahead. In, in premise one of the Kalam cosmological argument, um, you basically said that all things that come into being have a cause. So how would you respond to like quantum mechanics that says that in a quantum vacuum, stuff can just pop in and out of existence? So how would you like respond to that? Okay, I, I'm going to answer this question, but I'm just going to explain it for anyone who is not familiar with the terminology. The question was, in premise one, of the Kalam cosmological argument, we said that anything that begins to exist has a cause. Our questioner is asking, how would I respond to somebody who then says, what about quantum mechanics when in, we're in a quantum vacuum, particles come into, an ex into and out of existence uncaused? Okay? The answer to the question is to look at what is a quantum vacuum. The vacuum is not nothing. When you and I talk about the word nothing, everyone in this tent and everyone in the world understands nothing to be the absence of anything whatsoever. A quantum vacuum is a sea of fluctuating energy. It is not nothing. So 
when you hear somebody talking about a universe from nothing, if you actually read the book and look at their arguments in detail, they're not talking about nothing like you and I would talk about nothing. They're redefining nothing to include something. In the case of Stephen Hawking, he includes within nothing the law of gravity. The law of gravity is not nothing. Some other atheists will include within their definition of nothing a sea of fluctuating vacuum quantum fluctuation particles. That's not nothing. That The vacuum isn't nothing. It's a great question. How about over here? What's your question? Um, we know you like you base um, what we think is good off what God is like good. Um, but I know that some people argue that um, maybe God isn't good and his intentions are like not good for us. How would you like respond to that? I would respond to that probably by saying I would sympathize with anyone who said that, particularly if they then went on to list a number of things that have been done in the name of Christianity, which are obviously not good. So let's imagine in the 1960s or 70s, somebody sets off a car bomb in Northern Ireland in the name of Protestantism against Catholicism or the Crusades against those living in Palestine uh, in the, you know, centuries gone by. These are all really good examples of things that are obviously not good. So I would sympathize with them, but I would also then refer them to the question of could it be that God does have reasons for allowing evil in the world that aren't obvious to us. I mean, that would be possible. And that is what our seminar tomorrow will get into when we look at why does God allow suffering. Yes, go ahead. So if uh, so the person you're speaking to uh, believes that there is a God, um, but they want to know why Christianity is correct. So like they believe that Jesus did rise again, but why is Christianity correct? Also not into relationship, not like relating to other sort of religions either, just Christianity as a self-contained object, if you see what I mean. Okay, so this is, if you like, the next obvious step beyond this seminar. So our question is saying, okay, let's say for the sake of the argument that the person we're talking to does say, oh, well, maybe God does exist. Why Christianity? Well, you could start with evidence for the resurrection. It might be if they're coming from an atheistic background that they're an evidence-driven kind of person, a rationalistic kind of person. You could say, well, actually, there is good historical evidence for thinking that Jesus rose from the dead. And they might say, oh, well, okay, what is it? And you could say, here's an example, that there's a man called Gary Habermas, and with his colleague Michael Lycona, these guys have catalogued every single book and every single article that credential scholars have published on the resurrection of Jesus since 1975. Every article published by atheists, every book written by agnostics, including Christians as well, they catalogued all of these numerous publications, thousands of them, and then totted up the percentage scores to see which are the facts that the vast majority of skeptical scholars would accept as being historical facts. So which are the different details about the resurrection? Here are the top four in no particular order. 
Number one, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Secondly, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Thirdly, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. And then the fourth one is all to do with the conversion of skeptics, like, for example, the Apostle James and Saul of Tarsus. So the vast majority of scholars, including atheists and agnostics, think that these four are reliable historical facts. We then need to ask, okay, if we accept what most historians think, what is the best explanation for these facts? And it just so happens that when you run all the alternative theories, the disciples hallucinated, Jesus never died on the cross, the one that best fits all four facts is actually the resurrection explanation. This is called the minimal facts approach. And that is something that will at least make the person you're talking to think, okay, you're not just trotting out fairy stories, you're referring to actual historians that don't believe in Jesus and aren't Christians. They're saying the tomb was empty. They're saying Jesus died on the cross. They're saying that the disciples genuinely believed that Jesus had appeared to them. We have to come up with something to account for the existence of Christianity. Christianity exploded into life in the first century amongst people who were monotheistic Jews who'd been brought up to believe that the big sin was to say that any human being is God. That's idolatry. We know that thousands of monotheistic Jews suddenly stood on their heads theologically and said that a carpenter was God. The best explanation for this fact is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Great question. Okay, how about you over here? Hi there. Um, do you think the multiverse exists and could it work with God? Do I think that the multiverse exists? I personally think that it is possible that the multiverse exists. I think the important thing to focus on is that if the multiverse does exist, as our video pointed out, there would have to be a multiverse generating machine, something that creates an infinite number of universes. That machine would require fine tuning. So the multiverse objection as an attempt to undermine the fine tuning argument fails because you need the multiverse generating machine. I think it's possible that the multiverse exists. I'm very struck by the fact that probably we will never ever find out if parallel universes exist. Therefore, there's not a lot of point in putting all of my emotional energy into believing that they're there because there's no evidence for them. If you were to push me against a wall and say yes or no, is there a multiverse, I would say no. I don't think the multiverse exists. I think this universe is the only one that God has created. But it is at least possible that there's a, a multiverse. There's one uh, Oxford philosopher called Keith Ward, who is a Christian, who says, yes, I believe in the multiverse. I believe the multiverse is exactly what was happening in the mind of God. God was thinking up all the different possible universes. That's the process he went through when he launched our one with the law of gravity just right and with all those constants just right. So in that sense, you could say all Christians believe in the multiverse. It's a great question. Hello, how about you? Go for it. When it comes to the second point you made um, about fine-tuning of the universe, uh, yes. I think the best atheistic answer to that is what's called the anthropic principle, uh, which basically states that the universe we exist in has to be life-permitting because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be alive to observe it. Um, 
How, how would you go about answering that? Um, okay, so this is a really good question simply because if you were to show that video, and incidentally, you can go onto YouTube, and if you type in reasonable faith animated videos, you can get all four of those videos on your phone. So if you ever were in a conversation with somebody, you can just show them the arguments. If you can't remember it or you think, hey, when I was watching that video, I understood it, but now I can't quite remember it, just play the video. So in response to this particular question about the anthropic principle, this question goes like this, and this is the sort of thing that someone might say to you. If I find myself alive, experiencing a finely tuned universe, that's hardly surprising, because if the universe weren't fine-tuned, I wouldn't be here to experience it. What I usually say when someone says that to me is I say, okay, let's imagine a situation. You are on holiday in a foreign country. Suddenly, in the night, the police arrive, they burst into your holiday apartment, they blindfold you, they put a bag over your head, they tie your ankles on your wrists, they bundle you into the back of a van, you wake up in a prison somewhere, and then they lead you out into the courtyard, they take off the blindfold, and there are 100 trained marksmen, they're all pointing their rifles at you, and you hear the command, ready, aim, fire! and you hear the crackle of shots, and then a second later, you open your eyes and you realize, I'm still alive. In that situation, your first thought would not be, well, of course I'm alive. Nothing surprising's happened here. If I wasn't alive, I wouldn't be here to experience this situation. No, your first thought would be, oh my goodness, they missed. Why did they miss? There must be a reason they missed. Maybe they missed on purpose. Maybe they are rubbish marksmen. Maybe you know, their rifles jammed. You would assume purpose. You wouldn't default to the anthropic principle. That's usually what I say when people say that to me. OK, a few more. Yes, go ahead. Um, what would you say to a secular humanist who would acknowledge um, the things that Christianity has done in the past for uh, kind of creating an objective morality. However, don't think that Christianity still needs to exist, essentially. So they would get like their spirituality and all that through like, like a religion like uh, Buddhism or something, because they don't, don't agree with Christianity. OK, I, I'm really sorry I couldn't hear any of your question. C can I just take one from the other side, and I'll come back to you in a second. Yeah, go for it. So for the moral argument, premise two said that it was a fact that objective moral values exist. Is it not the case that there have been people throughout history who have done things that were, that A, they thought were right and they didn't, it didn't trouble their conscience, and B, everyone else around them agreed with them? If we haven't yet reached the conclusion that an objective moral compass in the form of God exists, how do we explain the fact that someone else thought something different means that objective values exist? Okay. So this is a good question. It's about the moral argument, and it's about the second premise, objective moral values and duties do exist. I think this is a great question, and I tend to use that point simply because it rings true to life. In other words, 
in this generation, amongst people of your age, people have extremely strong moral convictions. Your generation are really motivated about justice, about helping the poor, about global inequality, about global warming, about plastics in the ocean. There's, you know, people who are interfering with children. All of these things evoke a strong moral reaction. And therefore, it's the depth of feeling. It's the gut-wrenching thing that makes you argue, makes you angry, makes you proud. It's that gut reaction which I think rings true to life. And I think that's the best correlation to that second point, and I get massive buy-in on that second point. Do you, do you want to go again and this time just speak a lot more slowly and maybe make it a bit shorter because for some reason I can't hear. I think it's because there's fans behind you. Go for it, yeah. So what would you say to a secular humanist who doesn't believe that um, Christianity is needed anymore because um, they've already created an objective morality but um, they can just continue without religion essentially? Yeah, okay, great. Thank you so much. So this question is about what would I say to somebody who's a secular humanist and they actually do believe in objective morality, which they've created for themselves. Well, I would encourage all of you to listen to atheist philosophers who do believe that there are objective moral values, but don't believe in God. So you may well know that there is a Canadian philosopher, or a psychiatrist called Jordan Peterson, and he's become a YouTube phenomenon because he's going around the world debating and talking to people who have this position. And when you actually listen to those atheist philosophers, there's a series of podcasts that you can get into. They're produced by Premier Radio. There's a show called Unbelievable, and there's a theme they just introduced called The Big Conversation. And you can listen in and even watch on video some of these atheist philosophers who are trying to build a morality, an objective morality without God, it's only when you listen to them that you realize how incredibly hard it is to do it. It's just the same as my experience in becoming a Christian. My experience in becoming a Christian was partly through listening to people arguing against the resurrection of Jesus. So you can listen to a Christian saying, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, here's my reasons. You think, yeah, okay, I can see where you're coming from. It's only when you listen to the opposition side trying to establish that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's only when you listen to the opposition you think, oh my goodness, this is so weak. And that's the same experience if you listen, for example, to Steven Pinker talking about an atheist trying to build an objective morality. That's when you realize the weakness of the argument. Let's have a, a few more. We've got two minutes. Maybe one from this side, one from this side. Yes, go ahead. So... Say you're saying, uh, telling an atheist friend a testimony of healing or an encounter with God. Um, how would you counter them saying an argument of like the placebo effect, saying that it's all in your head and yeah. uh, it didn't actually happen? Thank you for this excellent question. If you were talking to an atheist friend and let's say you were giving them an account of a healing, how would you respond if they said, yeah, that's just the placebo effect? Well, for some healings actually that might well be the explanation. I mean, it, it's true that there are some medical tests where 
you have two people with the same problem. One of them is given, on a blind test, sugar. The other one is given something else. And the person who has the sugar, even though they haven't actually got any medicine, they feel better because of the placebo effect. So it could be that some reported healings are down to the placebo effect. However, we know that this doesn't explain all healings. So, for example, if you have somebody who, let's say for the sake of the argument, I can think of several examples of people who've had sight tests and lots of examples of people I know personally who've had hearing tests, and they've consistently over many years been getting a certain score with the audiologist or with the optician. Then they're prayed for in the name of Jesus, and a week after prayer, their hearing tests and sight tests are completely normal. And there's no expectation of the improvement, but it happens suddenly and dramatically. In these kind of situations, it cannot be the placebo effect that's altered the muscles in the eye or altered the internal workings of the inner ear. That's not down to feelings. My feelings wouldn't make the structure, the physical structure of my ear change. My feelings, or the placebo effect, wouldn't make the structure of the muscles behind my eyes change. So there are loads of examples. And if you're interested in this subject, I recommend two books. Number one, The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. And if you're really interested in this subject and you want to read the best book ever written on this subject, then you can get hold of Craig S. Keener's two-volume books. They're called Miracles. It's the best thing ever on this subject. Great. Final question from you on my right. Yes, go for it. If the universe did exist without God, then is it possible that the concept of God was created by humans with humans out of fear of death or desire for power over others? Okay, is it possible that the idea of God was created by humans possibly out of fear? Yes, if God doesn't exist, it's entirely possible. So I have a friend, and his contention is the reason people think in God, is, the reason people believe in God is because way back at the dawn of time, a man was walking along and a coconut or a banana fell on his head. He thought there must be a reason. Therefore, he, people invented the idea of God. So that might well be why some people believe in God. It could well be a, a good account of the origin of belief in God. But it would do nothing to undermine the objective reasons we've seen for the, God's existence. It would do nothing to undermine the cosmological argument. It would do nothing to undo what Edwin Hubble saw through his telescope in 1929 when he saw that the universe is expanding. It would do nothing to undermine Albert Einstein's proof that the universe is not locked in a static, steady state. It would do nothing to undermine the fine-tuning of the universe, and so on and so forth. So I think there are really good reasons to think that God exists. Okay, I'm now going to stand at the front here. I'm going to answer any questions that people have. God bless you. Come back tomorrow. Why does God allow suffering? See you next time.